Our scripture lesson for this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. You've heard the children's version of this. Now we get the grown-up version, and you get to decide which is better. The children's. It's always the children's. Some of you do a better job listening during those children's sermons than... uh... All right, listen now for God's word to you. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the paws that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come home and your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But the older son answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And his father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, we continue our sermon series, The Gospel According to Broadway, this morning with that classic musical, Les Miserables, or as it's known by its shorthand, Les Mis. If you took high school French, which I didn't, um, so I had to look this up, Les, Mis, Les Miserables simply means the miserable ones, the uh, dispossessed, the wretched poor. And if you've seen either the musical or the movie that came out in 2012, you know just how much it lives up to that title, that this story takes place in the years between the French Revolution and what's known as the June Rebellion. 
So this was another attempt on the part of uh, those who were opposed to the monarchy in France to overthrow the monarchy. It was a failed attempt. Uh, this June Rebellion is actually what inspired Victor Hugo to write down the original novel, which turned in uh, to the musical. So these are not happy times in French history, right? These are times of economic inequality, of violence, of political instability. I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. Um, things that we know really well. But these sorts of realities provide the backdrop for really powerful stories like Les Mis or even like the parables that Jesus tells. This parable, this parable of the prodigal son that uh, we just heard. And Les Mis, the original novel, is incredibly long. It's something like 1,500 pages. Just out of curiosity, who's read the novel? Just a couple of you. It took you a while, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, what did you say? Nerds. <laughs> Always the choir. Um, but the musical is a little more manageable, it's something like two hours and 38 minutes. The movie is about the same. That's a little more manageable than 1,500 pages. And it is still kind of this long story with a lot of moving parts to it. Um, I know how badly you all want to be here all morning, all day, talking about Les Mis, but in order to get us out of here at a regular, decent time so you can have lunch, uh, I'm going to focus just on the two main characters of the story to keep it as condensed as I possibly can. So the two main characters are Jean Valjean and Javert. So let's start first with Jean Valjean. The musical opens with Jean Valjean being released from prison on parole uh, after serving a 20-year prison sentence for stealing one loaf of bread to feed his starving family. And so as he is released from prison, he faces the same reality that returning citizens today face. He can't find work. He can't find a place to live. That is until he is a recipient of the gracious hospitality of a bishop who allows him to stay in his estate. Now, he has been released from prison, but at this point in the musical, Valjean really only sees himself as a convict, that he has been labeled in this way by society. We might debate, and rightfully so, whether somebody who steals a loaf of bread because they're starving is a criminal and a convict. But the point is, is that society has labeled him in this way, and he has absorbed this as true about himself. In his soliloquy, he says that they, they gave me a number and they killed Valjean. Whoever Valjean was 20 years before this, 20 years before he served his, and the 20 years before his prison sentence was released, it's all been lost. He sees himself simply as a convict, as a criminal, as a thief. And so because he believes that to be true about himself, he acts in accordance with that sense of identity. And so under the cover of darkness, he steals the bishop's silver and runs off into the night. There's this theory used among sociologists called the labeling theory. And what the labeling theory posits is that when somebody is labeled by somebody else or by society, that they will always act out of that sense of identity. It becomes something true for them. And so this has a lot of ramifications when it comes to things like criminal justice and understanding somebody who commits a crime. How do we label them? How do we uh, understand them? And this, sometimes this labeling theory has a way of reinforcing the power structures within a given society. So all juvenile people, all adolescents, get into some mischief. They break windows. They do things that maybe they're not supposed to do. But in more affluent uh, communities, we label that simply as juvenile behavior. 
But in poorer communities, in communities of color, this gets labeled as deviance. So we have here, we have Jean Valjean, one of the miserable ones, one of the wretched poor, being labeled as a convict and nothing more. And so he acts according to that. Then he steals the bishop's silver, runs away. But in the very next scene, he is dragged back in in front of the bishop by the police. He's been caught. And the police say that Valjean has the audacity to say that the bishop gave him the silver. And the the bishop looks at Valjean and he has a decision to make here. And what he says is, yes, that's right. I did give him the silver. Then he continues, he said, but friend, you left so early this morning. You left the best part behind. He walks over to the silver candlesticks and brings them to Valjean. And as Valjean is released by the police, he, the bishop leans in close and says, you must use this silver to become an honest man. That one moment of grace frees and saves Valjean. Grace. It's sort of Christianese word that we throw around a lot, isn't it? Grace. Grace is simply the receiving or the giving of that which is unmerited, that which someone does not deserve. Valjean does not deserve to have the bishop give him his silver. He deserves for the bishop to say, thanks for bringing my silver back, police, and you all can go on your way, and Valjean to go back to prison. But instead, what he does is he offers him grace. Grace, though, can be difficult. I came across this phrase this week that I love so much, I made it my sermon title, the agony of grace. The agony of grace. That grace disrupts us, it disturbs us, it unsettles the ground in which we walk because grace is not normally how things go in life, right? That we live in a world, we live in a society that is based on giving people only what they deserve. You want the nice things in life, you, should, you have to work hard for them, you have to, to earn them. Somebody's unkind to us, we have to be unkind right back. Somebody commits a crime, steals the silver, they should be sent back to prison. But then there are those moments of grace when somebody is gracious towards us, especially in those moments when we certainly don't deserve it, and it unsettles us. It's not the way life normally works. There are these videos of judges that have gone viral where the judge is sitting at the bench and someone accused of a crime is brought in front of him and and the judge is able to look past the, the, the criminal charges and to see the person who is struggling and is lenient and gracious or offers some sort of alternative sentence. And those videos go viral because it's so out of the norm from what we expect. We talk about the poor and the undeserving poor. I remember sitting in a meeting years ago, long before I went to seminary in a church, and we were debating whether or not the people who came to the church's food pantry really deserved it. Or were they just simply taking advantage of the situation? Only getting that which we deserve. Grace unsettles us. It destabilizes us. And it destabilizes Valjean as well. In his soliloquy, he says, he says How, why did I allow that man, that bishop, to touch me with so much love? I've come to know the world only in one way, as an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, that I hated the world and the world hated me. Now that one moment of grace has changed Valjean. He is not sure how to continue, how to move forward. At the end of his soliloquy, he says that I have to leave Valjean behind. He assumes a new identity. He breaks parole 
And he becomes that honest man that the bishop implores him to be. He goes on and he becomes a a well-loved and respected factory owner in a time and place when factory owners were not known for that sort of thing. Maybe they still aren't. Um, he, uh, he becomes a mayor. And so there's that, that beautiful song that Donna just sang for us by a character named Fantine. Fantine is an employee at Valjean's factory, and she is fired by the foreman for having an illegitimate son, and it causes her to be destitute. She resorts to prostitution, to, sell it, to ripping her teeth out of her head and selling them for money. She becomes very destitute, very desperate. And so when Valjean learns about this, he begins to care for Fantine, taking care of her medical bills. And as she lies on her deathbed, uh, Valjean promises to care for her soon-to-be orphaned daughter. And then later on in the movie, he becomes a philanthropist caring for the poor. That one moment of grace changes Valjean. That one moment of grace becomes like a stone thrown into a pond that ripples out from that one moment in time. How many lives are changed and transformed because Valjean now lives in this world of grace? That's Valjean. And then we have Javert, who is in a lot of ways the antagonist of the movie, but not in the sort of typical sense. There's no like great battle scene between him and Valjean. But he does represent very much a divergent path. He goes a very different way than Valjean uh, in the movie. Now we meet Javert at the beginning and the opening number. He is the prison guard overseeing Valjean and all of these other uh, prisoners. And he's the one who hands Valjean the papers that designate him as a former convict. that warns that you're a dangerous man and to mark you, to follow you to the day that you die, he says. And this is really how Javert sees the world. The world is black and white. It's good and bad. It's righteous and unrighteous. It's lawlessness and it's lawfulness. There is no in-between for uh, Valjean. And in one of what is, in my opinion, one of the top three songs in the musical that Bob sang for us at the beginning of the service, uh, a song called Stars, we get an inside look at how Javert views the world. That he looks up at the night sky and he sees the stars shining down and the stars for him reflect the moral stability of the universe. The stars stay in their course and they're always the same. That those who follow the path of the righteous shall have the, their reward, but those who falter and fall, they must pay the price. You can call Javert a little bit of a, a legalist. There's good, there's bad, there's lawfulness, and there's unlawfulness. There is no in-between. And because Valjean has violated his parole, assumed a new identity, Javert is in pursuit of him throughout the musical. And as it, the story progresses, Javert tries to go undercover with the, uh, the rebels during the June Rebellion, and he's eventually caught. And Valjean, who's working with the rebels, is brought in to decide what to do with Javert. This is Valjean's opportunity to exact his revenge on his greatest enemy, the one who has been pursuing him the whole story. What does Valjean do? He cuts off the rope that are hold, that's holding Javert's hands, and he lets him go. And Javert is horrified by this. This is not how the world works. He thinks that Valjean is trying to get something out of him, to do a little quid pro quo, to strike a deal and a bargain. But Valjean, who stands now in the place of the bishop, says, no, this, you're free to go, Javert. Again, the agony of grace. This destroys the world for Javert. The whole world comes crumbling down, just as it did for Valjean. And he, he could, in this moment, choose to accept this grace, to live in a new way in the world. 
But the world becomes so irreparably broken for Javert that he ends up taking his own life. Can't live in the sort of world that Valjean has forced him to live in. Damned if I live in the dead of a thief, he says in his song. And I feel for Javert. If only he could have accepted that, that gift of grace. I feel for Javert the same way I feel for the older brother in the parable that Jesus tells. The older brother who always did the right thing, always did what was expected of him, always set his alarm, got up on time, did the chores his father needed him to do to run the household without being asked. We can't deny that he did the right thing. I feel for him. I identify with the older brother. I am the oldest son. I'm the oldest child of my parents. I feel that heavy weight of duty and responsibility and obligation in the same way that that older brother, I'm sure, feels. That I imagine that he's in the room when his younger brother comes in and says, Dad, I want my inheritance and I want it now. What he's really saying to his dad is, I want you to be dead. You're only good to me for the money that you've saved up for me, only good to me for all the assets you have. And his father doesn't argue. He simply empties the trust fund. He liquidizes some of his assets and gives them to this younger brother. And the younger brother, a few days later, runs off to a far country where he spends all that inheritance on wild and frivolous living. Remember, prodigal means wasteful. And he blows through that inheritance really quickly. Pretty soon he has nothing left to make matters worse. A famine has struck the country. And so what does he do? He goes and hires himself out to a pig farmer, which to a Jewish audience you can imagine few things being worse than that. He sleeps in the pig pen. He feeds from the, with the pigs from the trough until he realizes even my father's employees are treated better than I am. So you know what? I got an idea. I will go home and I will tell him to take me on as one of his employees. I'm no longer worthy to be called his son, but maybe he'll let me work for him. So he starts taking that long journey home, rehearsing his lines over and over again. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then those arms that held him as a child wrap around him. And he looks up and there is his dad. He says, Dad, listen, I know I really messed up, but can I at least work for you? And it's like his dad doesn't even hear him. It's like he's not even listening. He says to his other employees, he says, go and get a robe and a ring, go and slaughter the fattened calf, get the best cut of meat, let's have a party. This younger son of mine was gone and now he's home again. So the party starts and the older brother's out in the field doing all that duty and obligation and he hears the, the bass bumping from the party, he hears all the sound going on. And he comes home and he sees his younger brother sitting there at the place of honor having a party thrown for him. And what does this older brother do? What any of us would do in this situation, he goes outside and he pouts. And his dad comes out to find him and this older son rattles off this list of all the things he's done for his dad. He goes, Dad, listen, I have always been by your side. I have never left. I've always done what you've asked and expected of me to do. But you've never thrown me a party. Where's my fattened calf? Where's my ring? Where's my robe? Where's my celebration? His father looks at him and says, Son, all I have is already yours. All I have is already yours. 
The Father's love and grace and acceptance already belongs to this older brother. It is already his. And perhaps he missed it, being so obsessed with all that duty and obligation. And perhaps if he had looked up from all of his responsibilities, he would have seen that his father was always running towards him as well, ready to embrace him, saying to him that what makes you lovable, what makes you acceptable to me is not that you do everything that I've expected you to do, not that you always do the right thing, but simply because you are my son. All of that already belongs to you. And perhaps the thing that God most wants all of us to know is that the universe, the cosmos, is not a cold, dark, mechanical place where those who are righteous get their reward and those who falter and fall receive, have to pay the price. But that the world is a place full of grace. That no matter if we are Javert or Valjean or the younger brother or the older brother, whether we have always done what God has asked and expected of us or others, or whether we have a lot to repent for, God has already been running towards us. While we are looking down, trying to get those lines just right to justify ourselves, God is always running towards us. That the universe is full of grace, free, unmerited, unwarranted, undeserved No quid pro quo grace. And if we can learn to accept that grace, that love, then we ourselves become like stones thrown into a pond that ripple out from that one moment in time until all of the world is held in God's embrace. Thanks be to God. Amen.